0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, let's go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians. We did an introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's one of the longer books in the New Testament, 16 chapters. Coupling that with 2 Corinthians, two letters to the same congregation, it's about the most material that any New Testament author wrote to anybody. Highly significant. Uh, So we did a thorough introduction. If you missed that, you can hunt that down, I think, on the internet or even order a CD if you find it helpful. And then we uh, began looking at the chapter 1, the first verse, all the way through verse 9, which is a formal introduction by Paul. Paul, he wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. He begins them all the same by putting his name first, Paul, which was customary for Paul. And then, greeting that church or that fellow Christian in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then sometimes he'd uh, give some specifics that were pertinent to that church and issues that were going on or things he wanted to talk about in that greeting. But it's always a warm greeting that Paul gives to the believers, regardless of their state, good, bad, or ugly. Paul's always gracious and always had a pastoral and shepherding heart when he greeted people. And he even ends a lot of his letters by saying, greet one another with a holy kiss or with love and affection and endearing terms in the name of Christ the Lord. And that's just a great exhortation, a reminder for all Christians that when we see each other for the first time, whether it's in your family when you're just waking up and you haven't seen each other for eight hours and you see each other in the kitchen at the breakfast table, it uh, should be a a warm greeting in the name of Jesus Christ. What a way to begin the day. It's very practical, but words mean things and they have an effect and an impact in a ministry so we have much to learn from Paul in so many practical ways. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, his introduction to this book. Uh, it's very positive. Um, he, it's quite lengthy in ter- compared to most of his introductions to other churches and people. He has much to say to the Corinthians, and his introduction is no uh, exemption from that. But it is all positive. We've talked about verses 1 through 9. It is Christocentric, Christ-centered all throughout Jesus Christ is in every one of those nine verses because he wants to keep the focus. And it is filled with grace. And we're going to talk about that. And so we, uh, it's a warm greeting because Paul was the pastor of these Corinthian Christians. Just by way of reminder, and maybe some of you that missed it, we noted that Paul planted the church at Corinth. He was a church planter. He went on his second missionary journey in around 51 or 50 AD. 51 AD, uh, after leaving Athens, actually after getting chased out of about five cities, he ended up uh, in Corinth there and started preaching the gospel, and people started responding positively, and there were some negative responses as well, and he ended up staying there for a year and a half, and he established a church there, and so he was the first pastor, he planted that church, after a year and a half, he left for other ministry that God wanted him to do, and not long after he left, the church started having problems. Because, newsflash, there were sinners in that church. That church was composed of sinful people. Um, And so they started sinning and compromising, and they needed some leadership. And so they start compromising. Paul starts hearing about it as he's on the road and working in other churches and planning a church in Ephesus. And he heard about it through a few venues. One was a formal letter that the Corinthians had written to Paul, probably in response to something he wrote them. And also he had some messengers come from the church at Corinth. So he had verbal testimony from people who were in the church at Corinth telling Paul, wow, here's what's going on, and ooh, it's getting kind of yucky, and wow, here's some of the main issues that are causing a problem. Paul, what are you going to do about it? And so there was a sense of urgency on Paul's part to tend to these matters, and so he writes 1 Corinthians 16 chapters, uh, and it's a very long epistle, a very long book, it's a very personal letter. Unlike some of the Paul letters that Paul wrote, like he wrote Ephesians, short letter, and Colossians, another short letter, those aren't really personal letters as much as they're, they're called cyclical letters, a cycle. In other words, Paul wrote it to a congregation, but he intended it to be circulated to other churches because the truths were pretty generic. Here's how you do Christian family life. Here's how you do church life. Those are cyclical letters. Unlike 1 Corinthians 16, this is a very personal letter, not a cyclical letter. He is addressing very specific people with very specific problems in a historical context, and it is filled with admonishment. It is filled with rebuke and correction. It's pretty heavy duty. Sometimes as I'm reading it, the pages start smoking. It's like, wow, pot. Paul was hot. He is upset, and we're going to see that as we go through it. So there's great uniqueness and distinctiveness to this letter to Corinthians, and even Second Corinthians. We'll see that as we go, but Despite all their problems, because we also noted that Paul, when he went to Corinth, Corinth was a city, I likened it to San Francisco in terms of its worldliness and uh, uh, humanistic views that reign supreme and immorality that reigned supreme. And also to modern-day Amsterdam, which is also known as a profligate, sinful, wicked, blatantly immoral city. And Las Vegas, uh, we call Sin City. Uh, Las Vegas, that's all about materialism and crass uh, materialistic views to getting rich and making money and compromise and sinful fun. And take all those three, mix them together, and you got somewhat uh, what we know called the city of Corinth back in Paul's day. So big emphasis on materialism, making money as a commerce city, but also a big emphasis on sexual immorality that ran rampant. Coupled with the fact they had weird religions all over the place as they were influenced by many false religions from different cultures. And so even... The religion, which was bankrupt and emphasized idolatry, crass, materialistic idolatry, coupled with a sexual immorality with the religion. This was blatant. This was overt. So I could see how Paul living in that city for a year could get discouraged. This is a dark place. But the good news is, Many people came to know the Lord. They just believed in the simplicity of the gospel that Paul preached. They became the Corinthian church. Paul pastored there for a year and a half and then he left. And then their old lifestyles and old habits began to creep into the church. Corinth began to creep into the church. And so it was becoming a compromised and worldly church. They had some serious problems, and I pointed out that one of the problems, along with immorality, was they began to question Paul's authority as an apostle. That's a huge issue in this epistle, and even more so in 2 Corinthians. We'll see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, but they began to question, for whatever reason, Paul's legitimacy as a, an apostle. And Paul heard about that. So he's writing back now. Three years later, three years after he planted and left the church, he's writing back to his church as the pastor, as an apostle. And before laying into them and rebuking them, he is gracious to them. So let's go ahead and look at the introduction, and we'll pick up on points, hopefully three and four, where we left off last week. So I'll read the first nine verses. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, even though Paul is he's writing with his quill, or probably talking to a secretary who's writing it for him, or chiseling through stone or whatever he was doing. As he's sitting there saying these words that are kind, patient, gracious, he has much concern and he actually has much to be upset about, but he starts off with blessing them, being gracious, and even recognizing great spiritual truths. And one of the main ones in that passage that kind of is the theme that weaves it all together in verses 1 through 9 is the word called that he uses in verse 1. Paul was called as an apostle. And then the middle of verse 2, He says that the Corinthians were called, they were called by God, sovereignly selected by God, out of sin, for a godly purpose, for life, and for holiness. They were called unto holiness, out of sin unto holiness. So he recognizes that despite their compromise and their sin, their bad attitudes, they were called by God, called to holiness, and then he concludes with that point, emphasizing. Corinthians, you are called by God. Don't forget it in verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called. Past tense, you have been called. I'm not doubting that. I'm not suspicious of you. I believe when I came and preached the gospel and you braced the gospel, that it was legitimate belief, at least collectively for most of you. So there's no reason to question whether you're saved or not. And so that's how he begins. It's not suspicious, it is gracious. It's a great truth. Well, I took these nine verses and broke them up into four points. We looked at the first two in the last couple of weeks. So we're going to pick up on point number three. So let's go ahead and go there just by way of reminder. uh, These four points, Paul's trying to emphasize something to the Corinthians to prepare them or foreshadowing what he's about to say. And he's being gracious. He's also trying to find some common ground here so he can get a hearing from the Corinthians and subtly reminding them that he, he, he's in a position to speak with authority. They have reason to listen to him and submit to him. So we'll see that in his introduction. And so everything that he says is used by the Holy Spirit of God to prepare the way for what he's going to say for the next 16 chapters, even in this introduction. So it's not flipping at all. Everything has a purpose in what Paul is writing. So the first purpose, and number one, was that Christians, Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians that they were called by grace through authority, through God's divine authority, and through the Apostle Paul, who was Jesus' agent of authority and was called, through the Apostle Paul, through the gospel, which is the revelation of God. And so he wants to remind them of that, because... Another major problem the Corinthians had is they were arrogant. How do I know that? Because later in the Corinthian later Paul says, you guys are arrogant. He says that point blank. They were puffed up. He uses that word too. So they had an inflated view of self and he needed to take the needle and put a hole in that balloon and deflate them back down to reality. You are sinners saved by grace. Not of your own doing. No self-sufficiency. This is all of Christ. And it's of all of divine revelation outside of yourself. And so they were called to grace by divine authority. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That was point number one. And then point number two we looked at last week as he's reminding these Corinthians and subtly, lovingly trying to at least set them in the right direction as they've gone astray. He reminds them in verses 2 and 3 that they have been called to grace. The life of a Christian is a life of grace. It's undeserved. We didn't work for it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It's not of our doing. It's all of God and Christ and His doing and His will. Every Christian has been called to a life of grace for community. So we emphasized that last week. For community. You were saved into a corporate entity called the body of Christ. You are... One member of many family members. You are not an only child as a Christian. I don't know what it's like to be an only child. I'm the youngest of ten children. I have the scars and the bruises to prove it. But anyway. So it's a great reminder from the Apostle Paul telling them you were saved unto community because one of their main problems was they had cliques in the church. Very small, preferential, partial clicks, and they look down their nose at other Christians in the Church of Corinth, and they look down their nose at other Christians in other churches. Actually, they could care less about other churches for the most part. They're just into themselves. Very self-centered. And so Paul says, no, remember, you are saved unto or for community. You're part of the body of Christ. You're part of a bigger picture. You're part of the family of God. There are other saints who have been saved. You are all on equal footing. You are all sinners saved by grace. It's all of Christ and His body. So they needed this great reminder. So every one of these main points is a reminder to kind of shake them up, reminding them of what it was like, of why and how they got saved. It was all of Jesus Christ. None of us. Too puffed up. Get your eyes off yourself, Corinthians, but he's doing it in a very gracious manner. So every Christian is called to grace by God's authority. Every Christian is called to grace for community under the body of Christ, for interdependent relationships with fellow believers, our spiritual family members. And now we go on to number three, and that every Christian and the Corinthians, Paul reminds them is we were called to grace, called to the Christian life of grace, with sufficiency. With sufficiency, key word. We have been... Supernaturally and spiritually enabled by God to live adequately and even beyond adequately the Christian life. Doing everything that God expects of us to do in the Christian life. Every Christian is fully sufficient from a spiritual point of view in terms of the resources that we have that we have received from God. And so that's what Paul emphasizes here in verses 4-7. to Let's go ahead and look at verses 4-7 and together and hone in on that. By the way, Paul's not trying to boost their self-esteem here by telling them you are sufficient in Christ because they had plenty of self-esteem and probably too much. It was leaking out their ears. They had too much confidence in self. But what Paul wants to remind them, on the one hand he's saying, yeah, because they were proud of their spiritual gifts. They became Christians and then they got these cool things called spiritual gifts, like new toys you get at Christmas And they're playing with the toys, but then they start to abuse the toys and then they start taking pride in the toys and then they start putting their very identity in the toys and then they forget who gave them the toys. That's what happened to the Corinthians. So Paul's doing two things in highlighting their sufficiency. is Yes, you have been made sufficient by Jesus Christ and His grace and the gospel and the gifts He's given you. But at the same time, don't you put your identity in your gifts that God gave you. Your spiritual gifts. So we'll go ahead and look at this spiritual sufficiency that every Christian has by virtue of God's grace. Uh, he says in verse four, "I thank my God always concerning you." I thank my God. So I thank God for you. The Corinthians were messed up. <laughs> He's thanking God for the Corinthians. Isn't that cool? I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. He's not thankful for the Corinthians as much as he's thankful to God for what God has done in the life of the Corinthians. That's why he can be sincere, he can be legitimate, he can be speaking the truth in love and sincerely say, I thank God for you, I thank for what God has done in you. They did. Embrace the gospel when Paul went to Corinth. They believed it, the simplicity of the gospel. When you believe in the gospel sincerely, you are saved, you are adopted in the family of God, you are born again. You're not perfect that day. You still have a battle with sin. Lifelong habits haven't necessarily just poof, disappeared. And Paul understands that. He's realistic about spiritual truth. And he is thankful to God that the Corinthians embraced the gospel when he came to town and affirmed him as their pastor and an apostle of Christ the year and a half that he was there. So he's reminiscing down memory lane as he thinks about how they received the truth of the gospel. And this becomes common ground for him and them so they can have something to stand on, to see eye to eye before they get into the really tough and difficult things that will be hard to talk about. Verse 5. Now he starts talking specifically... And by the way, you are in verse 4, I'm in verse 4. A, a pathetic, lowly sinner deserving death and hell for all eternity, by virtue of the fact that we believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and God in his grace saved us, that verse 4 is also true of you and true of me. That's part of your biography. Uh, saints should be thankful for other saints because of the grace of God that was shown to them by believing the gospel. And then in verse 5, he says that in everything you were enriched. In Him, says the New American Standard. That in everything. And he's talking about, practically speaking, that's true about humans, but primarily in the spiritual realm. In terms of religious life and spiritual life, By virtue of the fact that they became Christians, they believed in the gospel, a supernatural transaction took place, they were taken out of Satan's family, and they were adopted and put in forever. God's family, the Spirit of God, came down and began to live inside the believer at the moment of their salvation. So they have the supernatural Spirit of God living in them. They're in a new spiritual family. They are eternally secure, and with the Spirit living in them, they were given spiritual gifts to use in the body of Christ They have total forgiveness. They have the gift of prayer at their disposal anytime they want it. They have the gift of fellowship with other saints. They have the gift of the rock and the pillar of the church that is now their identity and their umbrella of protection all of their days. Just blessing after blessing after blessing that a Christian has by virtue of believing in the gospel. That is sufficiency. I have everything I need by virtue of my relationship in Jesus Christ. And richly so. Has been lavished upon us is one of the words Paul uses, and it's similar terminology in verse 5 when he says, that in everything, because you have believed in the simple gospel of Christ, Corinthians, even though you are compromising in certain areas, and sinful, and infighting, and questioning my authority, and deserve a rebuke, before he gets to that, in everything, in the spiritual realm, the religious realm, and even on the human level, you were enriched by God, greatly, enriched, a very specific Greek word, meaning having been greatly made rich. If you're a Christian, you are not poor. You are spiritually rich. God has lavished His grace upon you. Well, I don't feel it. Well, you're not supposed to feel it. It's not a feeling. It is an objective reality. It's an objective status by which you stand before God the Creator and Jesus Christ the Savior and Judge. There is a subjective component to it, and that's the Spirit of God living in you and me, testifying that we do. Identify with God and Jesus Christ as our Father and Savior. A very intimate, personal, subjective reality the Holy Spirit provides. But every Christian has been enriched and given everything that we need. We have all been made rich. Isn't that amazing? We are all sufficient in Christ. There are no inferior Christians. Hey, there's a reason not to get depressed if you're a Christian. I've been saved by God's grace. All of my sins have been forgiven. I've been given the Holy Spirit to live in me who will never forsake me. I've been given the gift of prayer. I've been given the treasury of the Word of God. I've been given the fellowship of the saints. I've been given the home of heaven and now uh, the pillar of the church. I've been given spiritual gifts. I've been empowered by God. I have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I am rich. We are rich in Christ. It's not in and of ourselves. Notice the the phrase in verse 5. It is in Him, in Christ. And that phrase is used all throughout this passage. Our identity is in Christ. Our identity is not in our spiritual gifts or our abilities or in our inadequacies. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. That's how you need to think about yourself. And His glory. And so, Paul's reminding them of their perspective that they should have of themselves one of the things that paul is doing here for the corinthians because they were so self-centered every time he gets the chance he's kind of reflecting the mirror from their face off to jesus christ in heaven you need to be looking to christ looking to christ looking to you are nothing and it's all about christ in him in him in christ that's what he's doing here you are rich christian you have been lavished with god's grace in christ and then he gets so that's a general truth that every Christian has been given great spiritual riches in Jesus Christ because they believed in the gospel. And now he's going to get specific with the Corinthians to kind of warm the prime the pump as he gets ready to talk to them in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 about one of their particular problems is their arrogance and self sufficient spirit about their spiritual gifts. Oh, these spiritual gifts, man, these are cool. Look what I can do. Zap, zing, superhero. And they're called the pneumaticas. Spiritual ones, spiritual gifts. Oh man, they love the spiritual gifts. But they were abusing the spiritual gifts, they were taking pride in the spiritual gifts. And two that they were really pompous and arrogant and outspoken about were the gift of knowledge, or wisdom, and the gift of supernatural speech. And in particular it was glossolalia, glossa, or speaking in tongues. They had the gift, many in the Church of Corinth had the gift of speaking in tongues. And they just thought that was the coolest thing. They talked about it. They bragged about it. Uh, it was the mark of a Christian and true spirituality. And those that didn't have the gift of tongues, they weren't really spiritual. Really, this is what Paul talked to them about. And so he's, uh, he hones in on those two things. You guys uh, make a big deal out of your gifts of speech, particularly prophecy and speaking in tongues, and also uh, the word of knowledge. Whatever it was, the word of knowledge. And so he points it out in verse 5. So I agree. God has I thank God for you. You believe the Gospel. God has been gracious to you. That is awesome. That is our view of every other Christian, brother, sister, in Christ. Not only has He saved you, He has equipped you and lavished grace upon you as a Christian in every area. You are fully sufficient with God's goodness and grace, especially in the area of spiritual giftedness. Every Christian has a spiritual gift, if not more. Without exception. Then He even affirms... What they were boasting about, their gifts of speech, tongues, and their gift of wisdom or knowledge, the word of knowledge. He he's hones in on it in verse 5. In all speech and all knowledge. Yeah, I agree with you, Christians. I agree with you, Corinthians. God has indeed given you that spiritual gift. Apparently, it is evident. We've heard about it. I saw a poster about it. Then he goes on to verse 6. So actually, he is... Take, so those are two specific references. That is not just talking in general, and that's not just wisdom in general. Those are the spiritual gifts that they flaunted in 1 Corinthians 12-14. Those are the same spiritual gifts that Paul is going to remind them of in 1 Corinthians 13-8 when he says, Wow, you guys are totally out of perspective in your thinking. You put all of your identity in spiritual gifts and how you can use even just a few of them, like speaking in tongues and the word of wisdom. But I need to remind you that the word of Uh, speaking in tongues will cease someday. It's going to fizzle out. 1 Corinthians 13.8. And the spiritual gift of wisdom is also going to fizzle out. 1 Corinthians 13.8. It is going to, poof, go into non-existence. And the only thing that will remain eternally is love. That's the end of 1 Corinthians 13. That is the context. The gifts are temporary. The gifts are for now. The gifts will all fade away. Love goes on eternally. You've got the wrong perspective, Corinthians, but here he's affirming the fact that they indeed have spiritual gifts. And, but his point is, but they were given to you by God, and God has a purpose for how and why you should use your gift. It's not for self. But he's highlighting, you are totally sufficient in Christ. Verse 6. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, what Paul's saying is, I am not questioning your salvation. Just because a couple of you are acting like knuckleheads, I am not going to jump to the conclusion and say you are not a Christian. Because when I was in your midst, it was readily apparent, it was obvious that Christ was confirmed in you. You believed the gospel. Some of you I saw grow for a year and a half as Christians. It took root. Some of you were bearing fruit. It is undeniable. This is a real Christian church. This is not a pseudo church. So Paul's very affirming here. This is all positive, by the way. He's not getting negative yet. Verse 7. So Christ confirmed. uh, Testimony is witness, by the way. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, you're really Christian. So that for the purpose of. To the end that you are not lacking in any gift. You, You Corinthians, man, you guys are gifted. Incredibly gifted. You aren't lacking in any gifts. That's actually true of every Christian. That's true of every church. Well, we don't have enough people to serve. Yeah, you do. We just need the saints using their gifts faithfully. And yes, that will be sufficient. So that you are not lacking any gift. Not lacking in any gift. So again, Paul is reassuring, he's reaffirming. Paul is very diplomatic here. In his opening. Very gracious, very pastoral, very diplomatic, finding common ground, very positive. Uh, he's not making things up to be positive to win a hearing. The, these are sincerely truthful things that he's affirming in the positive as he's about to engage in a very difficult conversation. He is speaking the truth in love and beautifully so. He's not being sarcastic yet in verses 1 through 9, he is being sincere. Jesus does this in the book of Revelation. Remember when the seven churches at the beginning of the book? Man, they all have problems. Except for the church at Philadelphia. I mean, it had problems, but they're not artic- or delineated in the Revelation. But the six other churches had major problems and compromise. And Jesus rebukes every one of the seven churches, except for Philadelphia he commends, uh, and Smyrna. But yeah, the other five, he, they have specific problems that Jesus is going to rebuke. But before he rebukes each church, Jesus finds, looks for, something virtuous that that church can be commended for. So he says the positive before he says the negative. Art Linkletter or whoever didn't make that principle up. Before you share the negative, share the positive. Jesus did. He practiced that. It's a legitimate way to communicate with people, especially fellow believers, when there's time to give a rebuke or an admonition, or a challenge, or a call to repentance. If there's anything at all that is true that can be affirmed by the grace of God in their life, then affirm that. Boy, do parents need to hear this. We, parents, need to hear this. Because Corinth was Paul's problem child. Paul had many churches that he planted. Many congregations. Corinth was his problem child. And parents, if you have children, you may have a problem child. And so this is great, too. And even Paul goes on to call the Corinthians his child, and he refers to himself as their father And this is how we should deal with our children graciously. We have to rebuke, we have to admonish, but is there common ground? Is there good that God has done in their life? Yeah, God has given them life. God has entrusted them to you as a treasure. And we need to thank and affirm and build up and encourage and edify our children, not just crush, crush, crush all the time. A parent who's always constantly wagging the finger, lecturing, and always highlighting the negative, the critical, you're destroying your child. You're crushing their spirit. So that's a great reminder for all of us just by virtue of Paul's example. That's why Paul can say to the Corinthians, be followers of me. Wow, what a bold statement. I am an example for you to watch and follow. So if he can say that to Corinthians, he says it to us. Be followers of me as I also am of Christ. Paul is a wonderful example for all of us no matter what our lot is in life as Christians. And so everything... Here that is true in terms of the sufficiency that has been given to the Corinthians by virtue of believing in the gospel is also true of every single one of us. We are sufficient in Christ. All Christians have spiritual gifts. All Christians have an overflowing sufficient amount of grace. All Christians have been saved by God and His initiative apart from any of our own doing. And Christ receives all the glory and praise for it, doesn't He? So this is a wonderful truth. So... Paul's being very specific here in trying to remind the Corinthians who they are in Christ, how they got there, and bring them down to reality. So they'll listen with a submissive, attentive ear to what he has to say. So let's go on. So that's called to grace with sufficiency. In other words, God made them sufficient. Let's go on to number four, which is actually the second part of verse seven to the end of verse nine. After telling the Corinthians that they've been called to a life of grace with the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that that entails. Finally, he says in 7-8, through Corinthians, you have been called to a life of grace unto security, unto eternal security. You are eternally secure in Christ. One of the key problems in terms of their worldview, which no doubt carried over from their pagan life, and even just being a human, is they put an overemphasis on the here and now, on the temporal. They were looking too much at themselves, down on the earth, at each other, and not up into heaven at Jesus Christ. They didn't have an eternal perspective. They were living in a a city that flourished economically. It was known historically 2,000 years ago, the city of Corinth was one of the places you could go in the Roman Empire to raise yourself up by your own bootstraps if you had a strong work ethic an opportunity given before you. And that happened to a lot of people. And they got literally out of that caste system that was so enslaving to most people in that day and age. Corinth was a place where you could be liberated. It was filled with what were called freed men. So no doubt many of the Corinthians or people just who lived in that city went there to get rich, to get out of the slum, to get out of the hole, to get off of welfare, whatever it was. And Corinth provided That opportunity. And with that came material blessing and treasure. And then a focus, is very natural, on the here and now. And wow, look what I have achieved and look what I have. And literally, heaven was on earth from their point of view. Coupled with the fact that they got these new cool spiritual gifts. Speaking in tongues, the word of knowledge. Maybe some of them had the gift of miracles or healing. We don't know. They were flourishing all over the place. And so they're thinking, man, heaven has arrived here on earth, hasn't it? You know what? Since heaven is here and in our midst, with his, we don't need the Apostle Paul. We don't need heaven. We don't need an eternal perspective. And so they lost the eternal perspective. And so uh, to cure that and recalibrate their view of life, in verse 7, he kind of changes gears. And then from the rest of verse 7 to the end of verse 9, he gives them that eternal perspective that every Christian continually and forevermore needs to have. We're not living for the here and now, this is temporary. This world is passing away. So look at verse 7. So that you are not lacking any gift. And here's where he changes gears. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Awaiting. He he acknowledges that they are indeed. He He's giving them the benefit of the doubt. Even though you are so materialistic and engaged on the things of this world. Because you're a Christian, no doubt you are awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ. Are you not? Amen? Is what he's saying at the end of verse 7 the revelation, the unveiling, uh, the coming of Jesus Christ at the end in glory for all the world to see where nothing is hidden anymore and eternal reality kicks in. That's what every Christian is waiting for. This is not our home. We are here temporarily. This world is fading away. Heaven is our home. It's all about eternity You are no doubt awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he brings them back to reality of what it means to be a Christian and have the right perspective and attitude. It's not all about the here and now and getting rich materially. It is more important to be rich spiritually. And he uses that terminology in verse 5 when he said, God has made you rich spiritually. So they need an eternal perspective. And that's just great counsel to any Christian, no matter what their problem is whether you're a parent or a counselor or a friend, I don't care what that problem is that your fellow Christian is struggling with. It's probably centered on the here and now. I'm having a conflict with a fellow person. I'm having a financial hardship right now. I'm having a physical ailment. I'm having a whatever it is. When you bring in the eternal perspective of what it means to be a Christian, it broadens the perspective in a very real and legitimate sense. That yes, This life is hard, but amen, this life is not forever. Right? So we need that eternal perspective. And Paul does that all throughout the book of Corinthians. He does it here. Uh, You need to be waiting eagerly, the revelation of Jesus. If you are waiting anxiously and delightfully and with great desire for Jesus to come, how much less precious the things of the world become, don't they? If you think about it, you just start to let go of your death grip on the things of this world. As you clutch, it's so easy to do. So that's what he's doing here. Uh, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9. God is faithful. Faithful is God is literally what the text is. So he's emphasizing the fact that God is the one who is faithful. He will fall through on every one of his promises. Again, he's reminding the Corinthians, it is not about you. You didn't save yourself. You didn't, get to, you didn't arrive by yourself. You didn't get saved by yourself. You're not getting sanctified by yourself. And you're certainly not going to be resounding in glory because of yourself. It is all about God and his faithfulness. And even though there's some word on the street that you're compromisers, that you're involved in immorality, that you've got a bad attitude, that I'm gonna to have to rebuke you and bring my spiritual rod of discipline, and we're gonna take the gloves off here in a second and go at it, me as an apostle, I am not questioning whether you are Christians or not. Paul still fully affirms that they have been saved, that they are Christians, even though their life is inconsistent with their calling. They're a living contradiction, yes. But he doesn't just jump to the conclusion and say, well, they're not saved. He's affirming that they are indeed saved. And now he's affirming, not only are you saved, you are going to be glorified by God in keeping with His promise for you. Isn't that awesome? It doesn't matter what the Corinthians were involved in. In terms of their sin. since If they truly believed the gospel they will be sanctified through this life and they will reach the point of perfect glorification in the future because God is the one who is going to do it. Our salvation is not contingent upon us. Our sanctification is not contingent upon us and us holding it together. Boy, I hope I don't lose my salvation. Well, if it's up to me, I'm going to lose it. If it's up to you, you're going to lose it. Salvation was a gift, all of God. Sanctification is a gift, all of God. Glorification is a gift, all of God. And he's going to follow through and perfect what he started. That's the beauty of Philippians 1.6. What God has begun, he is going to complete. We are all works in progress, are we not? We are all immature. We all fall short. We are all not what we are supposed to be. We are all living contradictions in the ultimate sense, really. Really? I have to be up here and preach biblical, perfect truth. And then I have to exhort you and point the finger and say, now do it. While at the same time knowing, "Uh uh-oh, Houston, we have a problem. I don't do it perfectly all the time. I blow it. So we're all a work in progress. But the good news, God is going to be faithful. I mean, we are going to be literally, I bet you we're going to be shocked and surprised when we get to heaven and actually see who else is there. Wow, you got in? Are you serious? And they'll probably say the same about you. Well, why is that? It had nothing to do with us, we, what we did. It is all about God who is faithful. He is faithful. He is actually going to usher these compromised Corinthians into glory. And the wonderful Thessalonians, who Paul wrote two short letters to, who in the beginning of both of those letters to the Thessalonians, in his introduction, he said, I thank God For you, to the Thessalonians. And I thank God for your love, get this, for each other. He did not say that to the Corinthians because they were not very loving. They were devouring each other. So you got the Thessalonians, Paul, man, they were just a loving bunch of people. They loved Paul. They loved each other. They were gracious to other churches. They were exemplary. And no doubt, I wonder what the Thessalonians thought of the Corinthians because they heard about that church that compromised church in Corinth. Well, Paul goes on record head and says, no, they're they're a Christian congregation. They are going to be saved. They're headed for glory like every other Christian. Why? Because God is faithful. If you believe the gospel, God's going to finish you as a product to the end. And you will be made in the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ, our majestic, glorious, perfect Lord. Isn't that amazing? That is absolutely amazing. That is the eternal perspective that we need to have in the face of any problem, trial, sin that we're dealing with. And that's what Paul is doing here. Verse 8, uh, who will also confirm you to the end. There it is. You are eternally secure in Christ. You can't lose your salvation. If you are a true Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. Drives me crazy when I hear somebody say, yeah, so-and-so, yeah, he used to be a Christian in high school, but now he's lit." well, ouch, okay. I think I know what you're saying. He professed to be a Christian in high school, but the reality is, if he's not a Christian now, he never was really a Christian in the first place. He was not redeemed and born again with the Holy Spirit living in him. Thought he understood maybe false profession, but he was never saved in the first place. That's what Paul says here. If you are a true Christian, verse 8, he will confirm you to the end. It's eternal security. Can't lose your salvation. It's an eternal gift. Not only that, You're not going to lose your salvation. You're going to be made blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of us in blazing glory. Why? Verse 9 already referred to it. Because God is faithful. He's the one who does it. He is the one that's proactive here. We are the passive agents who receive by believing. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called. God chose you, Christian, before the foundation of the world. God chose you before you even existed. Wow, that is mind-boggling. I don't understand that. That's amazing. I can't answer how that happens. That's a question I have for God in eternity. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And here with this final word... Again, he's bringing all the Corinthians into the fold of this corporate mentality. You are just one of many members. We all have the same Father God. We're all in the same church. We all have uh, the brother, Lord Jesus Christ is our elder brother. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Fellowship, key word in verse 9. He's reminding of the fellowship they need to be committed to. Fellowship, koinonia means to share. And in the New Testament, koinonia means to share your life with every other Christian. It is not an option. There's no room for clicks. This is masterful, what Paul has done here. Of trying to build solidarity before he even begins. And also a teachable spirit. That they might submit to the truth of Scripture. That they might live a life of grace highlighting the fact that they were called by God's authority for community in the body of Christ unto a life of sufficiency as they've been gifted by God to obey Him and please Him in every area of their religious, spiritual, human life. And that even though we are sinners and they were sinners, if they truly believe the gospel, they are secure in Christ forever and will be made perfect in glory someday. That is true of every Christian. That is their biography. That is your biography, if you know Christ. That is my biography. All praise to our gracious Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And with that, let's go ahead, and now we have the wonderful privilege to participate in communion together. And before I pray, actually, let's look at first, let's stay in Corinthians, because, uh, the Corinthians had a, they had a problem with communion. Uh, not taking communion, but understanding it. Communion. What does that word communion mean? Well, communion is related to the word community. Not by accident or coincidence. Community means everybody, together. Interrelated, family, everyone. It's anti-individualistic. It's anti-self. Communion. How appropriate. That we as a, a body of Christ, members of one another, stop and pause Take the elements, the drink, and the bread, reminded of God's and Jesus' death on our behalf as helpless sinners as we commune with one another and commune with Jesus. And the Corinthians, who were self centered and factious, they even managed to mess up communion. And that's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 11, the second half of the chapter. But let's look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. Being reminded of the purpose of communion, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord, that would be Jesus, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. How did Paul know that? Paul was not at the Last Supper, by the way. How did he know all the details of what were going on? Well, he said he received it from the Lord. So Jesus Christ, who appeared to Paul in glory, informed Paul, the Johnny-come-lately apostle, of how that first communion happened whether it's direct revelation or letting him see the other gospel testimonies. But he said, I received from Jesus about communion and how it happened and how it was started and how we're supposed to practice it. And then Jesus gave him additional details. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the bread is just a symbol, that's all. Just a tangible reminder of Jesus, the bread of life, the one who sustains us spiritually. That's all it is. It's just a physical reminder of who Jesus is. Verse 25, the bread that came down from heaven. Uh, In the same way, he took the cup. Also, after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So that little drink, it's just a visual living metaphor of Jesus' death on behalf of sinners. We deserve to die, but he died for us. He got punished for us as our substitute That's what we're supposed to be thinking about when we take communion. Jesus has given us life by virtue of his death. So he took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. My blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so what are we supposed to do when we do communion? It's remembering Jesus, thanking Jesus for, if you you know him personally, thanking him for being your savior. And just thanking him for all the blessings you can possibly imagine. And if you want to have a time of confession to the Lord Jesus as well, confess your sins and he'll forgive you as one of His children, just a gracious time. That's what we're supposed to do. Stop and pause and meditate and worship our Lord Jesus Christ in a very personal and intimate manner. That's this gift of communion, verse 26. And it's very solemn and serious, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. He is coming again. There's that eternal perspective again. He is coming. Actually, you know what? He is on His way. That's what it means. He is coming. That means He's on the way. For some people, that's yikes. For others, amen, Maranatha. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of communion of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man or woman or child who knows Jesus must examine themselves before taking communion, and in so doing, then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment from God upon themselves. If they do not judge the body rightly, for this reason, many in the Corinthian congregation got weak and they got sick because they were abusing communion, not examining themselves, not confessing their sin. And a number of them literally were judged by God to the point of death. Verse 31, but if we judge ourselves rightly, confess our sin and ask the spirit to search our hearts, uh, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So we have that wonderful opportunity now. So what we'll do is uh, we got got uh, tables here at the front and then also in the back. And so if we could get uh, lines going there, go ahead and grab the bread and grab the cup. Hold it and go back to your seat. And then when everybody's done, uh, we'll reflect, we'll pray together, and then we'll also uh, take the elements together. While you're waiting, talk to the Lord Jesus, your wonderful Savior, as we recollect His blessings upon us. Let me go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this time these great words that are living from your Scripture of the gift of communion. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can have intimate interaction and communion with you as a Savior, but also as elder brother and friend of sinners. And we just pray that you would bless us and make it uh, something significant in our lives as we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.